Hello, and welcome to this second February edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Neil Greger. Neil is reader in German history at the University of Southampton, and I met up with him shortly before Christmas to discuss his recent book, Haunted City, Nuremberg and the Nazi Past. Neil's interest in the city is more than simply that of the professional historian. His own father grew up there, and one of his earliest memories of encountering history was hearing his German godparents describe the RAF bombing of Nuremberg. Neil has spent years in the city's archives, exploring the question of how a city, and indeed a whole culture, sought to come to terms with the horrors of its own past. He's visited libraries, museums, cemeteries, memorials, and bric-a-brac shops in order to build up the picture he presents in the book. I asked him first to describe the city at the end of the Second World War. Well, by the end of the war, Nuremberg, of course, had a, a reputation second to none as a Nazi town. That comes primarily from the, the Nuremberg rallies, which were staged every year in peacetime. They were, they were stopped upon the outbreak of the war, but clearly were the, the centrepiece of the regime's propaganda display. The city was associated then, of course, also with the Nuremberg Laws, which was the most vicious piece of Nazi anti-Semitic legislation uh, enacted uh, during the Third Reich. There's a further set of, of associations there which come from the, the links of the city to the name Julius Streicher, who was the, the Gauleiter, the regional leader of the Nazi party in Franconia, um, who was a, a particularly vicious anti-Semite even by the, uh, the standards of the Nazis, and who ran the pornographic notorious newspaper Der Stürmer, which was perhaps the most vicious of all the anti-Semitic rags the Nazis put out. All of this, of course, reached its, if you like, its culmination in the staging of the Nuremberg trials in the city after the war. So, so this is a city really where the, the, Nazi, the Nazis' hubris was, was kind of, I suppose, ended ultimately in, in nemesis, the, the humiliation of the, of the trials of the Nazi leadership there. And of course, all of this left the city with a a particular PR problem, if you like, by the end of the war. But I think we, we, we've also got to say that much of what happens in Nuremberg during the war is, is actually not, not different to what happens elsewhere. It's typical. And, and therein actually lies the, the real story, or much of the real story. It was a big industrial city. Um, it produced for the army. Uh, it produced for the, uh, the other armed forces. It sent its sons and indeed many of its daughters out to the occupied territories in the east where they participated in a violent war of annihilation and of course in some cases in the genocide. In the city's factories tens of thousands of foreign force workers were brutally exploited along with many concentration camp inmates. The war came home to roost in the second half of the war then because the city was heavily bombed and, and massively damaged and likewise, like many other German cities, it experienced a huge influx of refugees at the end of the war. So much of what happens in Nuremberg after the war and, and much of what people there had to come to terms with uh, was actually the consequences of the war in general rather than the history of, of Nazism in particular in that city. Would it be a fair characterization to say that, that Nuremberg after the war, at the end of the war, was suffering from a state of post-traumatic shock? Well, I've, I've made a, a kind of real point of avoiding the word trauma uh, in this book because it's one of those words which 
we as historians find easier to use than we do to define. And it's not immediately obvious that the way in which trauma plays out in individuals can necessarily be applied in the same way to societies. But I think if we're going to take the idea of trauma as a general metaphor for the massive multi-dimensional shock which the war administered to Nuremberg and as a metaphor for its complex physical, social and, and, and mental and emotional after effects, then yes, I think we, we probably could say that German society and Nuremberg society with it is, is traumatised by its experiences in the war and much of the struggle that people have to, to make sense of what had happened to them during the Nazi period and during the war lies in the, in the resounding shock that the experience of defeat and the aftermath of war brought to German society, yes. I mean, it, it, it seemed to me reading your book that quite apart from ideological, psychological impediments to coming to terms with what the Germans had done in the war, the material conditions which prevailed in Nuremberg after the war made it, there were so many pressing immediate physical problems that it would be beyond expectation for people to calmly sit down and begin to come to terms with what, what they, their nation had done. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. The material crisis into which German society and urban society is plunged by the circumstances of collapse and defeat is such that, you know, for, for, for many years, many, many tens of thousands of citizens of this city are living in a rubble environment effectively. The period of real privation and hunger for Germans is, is in the years 1946, 47, 48. The, the suffering is intense. It's therefore, as you say, unsurprising really that Germans are concerned primarily with their own immediate welfare needs and indeed with licking their own wounds from the war which are also considerable, although of a a different order or a different nature to those which they visited upon others and and therefore that it takes time for them to to feel able to imagine and think about those parts of the war in which they they figured not as victims but as perpetrators no i think that's absolutely right and the other thing which i took from your book was that of course in 1945 politics doesn't stop the cold war then becomes a politically shaping force. Germany is a divided country. There are millions of Germans who are displaced within Germany. Therefore, different kinds of political discourse are mobilized to deal with new political realities. And so coping with the aftermath of the war in ideological terms is, is by no means high or at the top of anybody's um, list of priorities. No, that, again, that's, that's absolutely right. The, the dominant political forces in the 50s are really encouraging anything but a sort of direct ethical confrontation with the crimes of the past. The overarching political framework in West Germany in the 50s is conservative. Uh, we're dealing with the, the Ardenau years, after all. We're dealing with the years of Western integration, in which it becomes inexpedient for West Germany's new Western allies to, to keep pressing the issue of, of, of war crimes because they want to uh, re-establish West Germany's army, for example, and need the, the returned uh, generals from the Nazi era to, to, to do that. Conversely, of course, anybody who tries to think or speak critically about the crimes of the Nazi past and point the finger at the, the presence of 
former perpetrators who've made an easy transition back to a life of uh, comfortable bourgeois conformity as the economic miracle took hold and prosperity returned is those people were easily dismissed as communist agitators who were somehow acting with uh, the Eastern Bloc behind them and seeking to destabilise West German society. Now where this, where this plays out most obviously in the early post-war years is in denazification, which starts out as a, a massive attempt to force individual party members to confront the consequences of their own actions and to think about their own complicity as party members, but which quickly turns into a process whereby the Americans, who need the expertise of lots of engineers and businessmen and civil servants and elite figures in all sorts of walks of life, quickly turn this into a process of rehabilitation and reintegration and amnesty, so that come 1950 the vast majority of former party members have just been amnestied, let off the hook, slapped on the wrist and given a minor fine which means nothing and then let back into uh, civil society with their reputations fundamentally intact. In the Nuremberg trials which followed immediately after the war it seemed from the book that the population was was probably at best indifferent to what was going on because material conditions were so appalling and for whatever other you know psychological reasons but by the time you get to the late 50s the early 60s there's television there's more media and Germans were by then beginning to examine what had gone on in a, in a more self-critical way. I mean, maybe, maybe through the, the, the prism of the Eichmann trial, you could say what, what was happening as part of that process. Yes, the, the Eichmann trial, I think, is probably the moment at which the events of the Holocaust, which had been overwhelmingly sidelined and marginalised and ignored as far as possible in the sort of public culture of the 1950s, forced their way into the consciousness of many, if not most, West Germans and demanded of them that they, they somehow you know, form a view on, on, on what had happened. Now, why the Eichmann trial should have been the moment to do that is not entirely clear, given that there had been a number of other war crimes trials which did continue to take place during the 1950s but I think the Eichmann trial was was different for a number of reasons. Firstly he was the biggest Nazi to have been captured since the immediate post-war years so that he was a far more kind of compelling and interesting uh, an important defendant, in a way, than, than, than the other defendants had been in the 50s. Secondly, the circumstances of his capture, which of course took place in South America under the auspices of Mossad in 1960, gave the, the event a kind of sense of adventure and excitement which was fundamentally different to those of the 1950s. And I think you're right that the the visual quality of the Eichmann trial captured the imagination, the sight of this unobtrusive man in his horn-rimmed spectacles, looking like a middle manager, sat inside a glass cage, being beamed into the, the living rooms of the increasing numbers of West Germans who now had televisions, forced people to think about the alleged ordinariness of the perpetrators of the Nazi past and to accept that they hadn't all been fringe monsters or outsiders, but had come from the centre of German society. 
that of course posed a, a particular ethical challenge for, for readers, listeners, observers of, of the trial. And am I also right in thinking that because it wasn't conducted under German law, which had a particular narrow definition of culpability, it it was allowed to have a much broader canvas and look at the bigger story of the Holocaust in a, in, in a way that, that perhaps hadn't been seen so publicly before? Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. In, in West German legal tradition, where individual defendants were put on trial for their role in the Holocaust, they were always tried for particular crimes, either murders of particular individuals. So it wasn't the Holocaust on trial, but one or two murders. And in that sense, the, the enormity of the Holocaust and its mass organised nature never really came across in the reportage of the of the West German legal process insofar as uh, there was such a process. The Israelis, of course, used the Eichmann trial as a, as a means of, of talking about the, the wider history of the Holocaust and sought to, to use it not only in the pursuit of justice but also as a pedagogic tool. So much of the Eichmann trial covered the events of the Holocaust as a whole and, and sketched the you know, the, the, the wider campaign of killing as, as context for what Eichmann did. And in doing so, yes, of course, it communicated a much broader picture to Germans who, who were forced to accept that this wasn't a series of isolated killing actions in the East, but it had been a mass organised process. Your book administers a useful corrective to the view that it was the student radicals of the, the late 1960s who sort of ex nihilo came along and, and challenged the, um, the comfortable sort of self-image that, that, that the Germans had managed to forge for themselves. In fact, there, there, was, a, there was a middle generation which, which helped to make that possible. Yes, that's right. It, it, it's really a sort of entrenched myth of the uh, sort of self-styled generation of 68 that they confronted their elders with the sins of the past and forced a, a generation who had repressed everything and swept it under the carpet to to come to terms with it and, and talk about it openly and honestly. Now, I actually think that that decisive shift towards thinking more openly and honestly and self-critically about the past took place considerably earlier. It starts in the late 50s, early 60s, around the time of the Eichmann trial, for example. And the reason it, it kind of takes off is because committed liberal pedagogues and activists of the generation who were born in the 1920s uh, accept that this this needs to happen. So in the early 1960s, it's in fact the generation of young school teachers who are criticising the young for their lack of interest in the uh, Nazi past and the Holocaust and criticising the young for their consumerist, present-centred mindlessness. And the reason the pupils who become the students of the late 60s discover the Holocaust then is because the generation above is trying to tell them about it. So the generation above puts on a series of exhibitions and pedagogic events and schools events in the mid-60s to try to raise awareness and this then does clearly spark an interest amongst some students who then take the story further and do become the memory activists of a, of a later generation. But the decisive shift does take place earlier, I think. And uh, there's a powerful myth there, which I think you're right, needs, needs puncturing. Do you think that the stridency of, of that sort of anti-fascist rhetoric was, was necessary in order to, to really kickstart something big? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the people who were 
trying to push a more critical memory agenda were pushing against very profound resistance. There were, of course, still some very entrenched interests who had absolutely no interest in muckraking or digging up the crimes of the past uh, for obvious self-serving reasons. So the, the emergence of a critical memory culture didn't just happen of its own accord, it had to be fought through. And in that sense, the stridency was perhaps necessary. There was a, a struggle being played out over the past in the 1960s. Now, it also gained its immediacy and its sense of urgency because of the resurgence of the far right in the 1960s. So, so anti-fascism was not simply a, a historical problem in the 1960s. It was regarded as, and indeed it was, a contemporary problem. One of the most interesting parts of this story for me, and, and something about which I was completely uh, ignorant before I started this, was the extent to which the neo-Nazi party of the 1960s, the NPD, tried to use Nuremberg to stage its rallies and its election campaigns and was seen off by the mass ranks of the left uh, who who wished to oppose the symbolic occupation of Nuremberg by the far right. So for that reason too, the, the problem of the past and its ethical challenge, you know, was uh, regarded as particularly acute in the 60s. As I was reading the book, I was thinking about not only Germany, but also the in many ways similar trajectory of Austria in the war, but the very different post-war response to the wartime past. And looking at contemporary Austrian politics today, one could well ask the question, has, has anything been learned? Has any self-examination been gone through? I think it's, it's fair to say that compared to West Germany, the, the learning process and the the emergence of a culture of self-criticism and reflection in Austria has been altogether more limited and altogether more more retarded. And there are, there are obvious reasons for that, which really reside in the circumstances under which Austria was incorporated into the Reich in 1938. It, it furnished Austrians with a very powerful set of victim myths, which retain their purchase, I think, ultimately to this day. Austrians have always been able to claim that they were the first country occupied by the Nazis. Now, of course, the truth is something different. When the uh, Nazis moved in in 1938, they were largely welcomed by the, uh, by the Austrian population, who firmly believed in the merits of returning to the, the, the Greater German Reich. Uh, if nothing else, of course, even before 1938, Austria was itself under the... Uh, control of a sort of clerico-fascist regime. So, so there are indigenous traditions of extreme right-wing politics there, which uh, have been often uh, written out of the script. There are signs that it's changing a little bit in Austria. Um, Austrians have been forced to engage in issues of compensation, uh, they're slowly starting to address the need to set up historical foundations and uh, scholarly commissions to explore aspects of the Nazi past. But it's been a very, very slow process compared to West Germany, which I think, in many respects, for all its, its weaknesses and for all the delay there was in starting to explore the past critically, offers something of a model, really, to other countries who've been through that kind of genocidal process. I did wonder, then, if the comparatively positive note on which the book ends, as you've, as you've just said, was 
problematized by Austria because you seem to suggest that if if a country has a democratic political system and a certain level of economic affluence, then the conditions are there to go through those processes and come out on the other side. And I wondered if Austria, given that it is an extremely affluent country with a, a democratic tradition, meant there was there were other things uh, in the equation which would you know which could um which could derail that process of of, of learning. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think in making the point about West Germany as a as a liberal democracy with a, a, a vibrant democratic culture, I I was trying to say, or I'm trying to say, that the thing that makes it most likely that a country will eventually start to engage the moral challenge of its own dictatorial or genocidal past is the presence of a, a vibrant liberal democratic culture. But that doesn't make it inevitable. These things are contingent. There's nothing pre-programmed about the, the evolution of memory cultures. There is much which you know has to be fought out in particular contexts and which can go one of a number of ways. But it does strike me that, that Germany, or West Germany after the war at least, has actually been, for all its failings, actually uniquely successful in, in confronting the legacies of the past and at least of placing contemplation of its 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 Nazi past at the centre of its political culture compared, say, to Turkey or compared to uh, nations or states which have engaged in colonial massacres in Africa or the Far East. Uh, West Germany stands out as, as, as different and it seems to me the answer there, or at least part of the answer, does lie in the fact that a sort of uniquely critical engaged political culture had consolidated itself by the 1960s and so if there's a if there's a lesson for countries which are coming out of a dictatorial or genocidal past and if there's a lesson there for those who are occupying those countries the most obvious one here I think is probably Iraq at the moment it, it probably lies in the fact that one shouldn't try to force these people to confront the the thorny ethical and political issues immediately after the war, where they are going to be too wrapped up with dealing with the uh, immediate post-war crisis that they find themselves in. But one should instead foster the emergence of a, of a liberal democratic culture and hope then that in time people will start to think critically about these things for themselves. That was Neil Greger, whose book, Haunted City, Nuremberg and the Nazi Past, is available in hardback from Yale University Press. If, as I hope, you've enjoyed this programme, you can subscribe free to future editions by going to iTunes. Simply type Podularity in the search box. It takes seconds and means you'll never miss a future programme. My guest on the next programme will be Catherine O'Flynn, talking about her prize-winning first novel, What Was Lost. I hope you'll join me then. And until then, goodbye.